Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we start a new series, Christ and His Disciples, a study of Luke. The name of the sermon is called Fully and Completely, and Pastor David will be preaching from Luke 9, 51 through 62. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, we are uh, starting a new series within the Gospel of Luke. We're going through the Gospel of Luke from start to finish, and as we uh, find ourselves at the end of Luke chapter 9, we find ourselves actually at a hinge point in the story and the narrative of the, of the Gospel of Luke. That uh, so far we've been looking at Christ and his mission, the identity of Christ, who he is, his origin story, his divinity, the, the mission that God the Father had given God the Son, and that mission is starting to get clearer and clearer and clearer as we go, and now we find ourselves in this story uh, taking a pivot and a turn, and, and emphasis picks up now on Christ and his disciples. The journey, the, the, uh, the, the journey narratives that will take place over the next nine chapters. And once again, we find ourselves in this motif. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see it. As Abraham left his country and kindred and father's house and followed obediently uh, the call of God to go to the land that God had prepared for Abraham, so he followed God. As God's people, Israel delivered out of Exodus, delivered from slavery, follow God through the wilderness as God's people uh, follow God in his call in their return from exile so we have once again God, Jesus Christ and his followers, his disciples as they are walking with Jesus on the way and this is a journey that is not just for the 12 disciples who were physically, literally with Jesus in biblical times it's a journey for you too it's a journey that as we read again and look again over the weeks and months to come, uh, Christ and his disciples see yourself as entering the story, that you are walking with the disciples, near the disciples, with Jesus, near Jesus, learning right alongside of them at the feet of our Lord and King. And at this point in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, we start to see where this journey is going, where the destination of this path is. And we see the gospel himself, Jesus, setting out to go to Jerusalem. That's the destination. That's where the mission and the path will lead him. Jesus is setting out to make his way to Jerusalem. And that's where the story picks up for the disciples and where the story continues for you and I. So meet me, Luke chapter 9. Turn uh, in your Bibles there or pull it up on your phone, page 1031, if you're using the Bible, uh, the church Bible provided for you. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 51. Let me just read that one verse uh, to, to begin our time in God's Word. Luke 9, 51. It says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this verse, at first glance, it just looks like a travel itinerary. He plugs into the GPS. Wherever he is, the destination is going to lead him to Jerusalem. But it's so much more than just a travel itinerary. Look again at some of the phrases in this one verse alone. Uh, when the days drew near. Uh, this phrase isn't just saying, you know, one day follows, another follows, another follows, another. It's saying that there's, there's a sense of fulfillment taking place. 
there's a sense of divine cosmic purpose and mission unfolding, and a timely chapter in the unfolding of redemptive history is drawing near. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Uh, the hour is drawing near, Christ's hour to which he is fulfilling this incredible mission. It says, uh, um, when the day is drew near, for him to be taken up. That's resurrection language. That's ascension language. That's post-cross kind of talk. And those of you who know the story well know that to get to the other side of the cross, resurrection and ascension, we first have to pass through the cross. That this journey to Jerusalem for Jesus is not just a journey to a place. It's a journey to fulfill a mission. It's a journey to fulfill a purpose. He's not just going from point A to point B. He's going to fulfill and accomplish a mission which was given from God the Father and a mission that he is walking willingly on. And we've actually already been given some glimpses of this mission, even in the Gospel uh, of Luke in the ninth chapter. Look at a couple verses. Go back with me to Luke 9, verse 22. Uh, we looked at this verse uh, a couple weeks ago. Jesus says, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day, Luke 9, 22, be raised, lifted up. Jump down now to verse 31. This is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking to Moses and Elijah, and he's speaking about his departure, the second exodus, the ultimate exodus, the deliverance of God's people out from slavery and bondage to sin and death, out from a bondage to the broken and evil world that we live in, and deliverance into glory, the, the, the departure which he was about to accomplish, fulfill, at where? Jerusalem. Jump now to verse 44. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, Jesus says to his disciples. And now jump back to verse 51, the first verse that we're looking at in our passage today. When the days drew near uh, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we start to see with crystal clarity that Jesus knows, and he's sharing with his disciples, that this journey that he will go on will this journey to glory will take him through his own humiliation, his own self-sacrificial death. To get to the resurrection, he's got to go through the cross. To get to the ascension, he's got to go through the tomb and through death itself that he might be raised up again into glory. This is the path that Jesus is taking. And, and, and profoundly so. The way in which uh, uh, verse 51 is talking about these things, you would almost expect the cross to be like the next verse or the next uh, chapter at least. But we've got 10 chapters of journey before we even get to the triumphal entry. See that Jesus then sets his face. He sets his face. It's a resolute commitment. It's a laser-like focus. It's a tunnel vision-like commitment, knowing that hardship is going to come along the way, and the end of the journey for Jesus is one that culminates at the cross, his death, and then his resurrection. Do you see why he must set his face? He must commit to this journey. 
because it's a path that, it's a road of ultimate humiliation and death for us, that the very trajectory of God the Son in even leaving glory, that step in and of itself is humbling, self-sacrificial, in the courts of glory, constantly receiving the worship of the angelic realm in perfection, in a place without sin, suffering death, decay, yet God the Son steps into our broken world, absorbs brokenness and sin and evil. He takes it all upon himself, and he is walking toward that destination. Do you see that the gospel is setting out toward Jerusalem? The entirety of his incarnation, the entirety of his life, the entirety of his death, burial, and his resurrection and ascension, all of that is Jesus on the road to save us, going to Calvary. See him on this journey. See him walking, not just a travel narrative, but a salvation narrative. Not just getting from point A to point B, but from getting from where he is to fulfill a purpose and a mission. And if, if the Jesus that we follow, if the Lord that we serve, is a dying and raising Savior... Is it, is it so much of a stretch that to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to emulate him, to be like him, is a path that leads us in denial of self, in picking up our cross daily to follow him, death to self, life in Jesus. It's the same journey that he took. Jesus himself, death to self, new life for us. So as his followers, our life, to be like Jesus is to die to self and to live to Christ, constantly saying no to sin, even no to good things that they might come secondary to Christ, dying to our wishes for Christ's wishes, our design for God's design, our purposes for God's purposes, our plans for God's plan, our identity for the identity that God gives us, dying to self, but my friends, not losing ourselves at all but gaining life and life eternal, true life, both here and now and for all of eternity. That's the path that we take. That's the path that Christ's disciples take. Are you ready for that path? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to join him on this journey? Because if you say yes, and I hope and pray that you do, you need to know that following Jesus will transform your heart for people. Following Jesus will change your heart for people. You're going to start to look at others in the way that Jesus looks at others. And you cannot help but have your heart transformed and changed and formed like the image, uh, being formed like Christ for other image bearers. See just how deep the transformative work of the gospel has in our heart for people. And it's, God shows us in these next verses. Check this out, verse 52. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But, verse 53, the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, we, gotta, we have to appreciate a little bit of historical background to understand the intensity of the situation, even in these two verses alone. In biblical times and in this time, the Jewish people and, and the Samaritan people hated each other. They didn't get along. They didn't like each other. And it was not uncommon 
for, for people to avoid Samaria. If you were a group of Jewish travelers, it would, have not, it would have been no surprise, culturally speaking, to make sure you set your travel plans so you went around Samaria, or you didn't have enough to go there. You didn't have to worry about entering into Samaritan territory. And it was mutual. Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people either. One early um, Jewish historian brings to mind a, a historical account that happened in AD 51 where there was a group of Jewish uh, travelers uh, making a pilgrimage and traveling along in a border city that bordered uh, Jewish territory and Samaritan territory. They were murdered by the Samaritans. Uh, shocked, confused, outraged, they turned to Rome. They appealed to Rome looking for some measure of justice to make this wrong right. A group of Jewish people were murdered by Samaritans. They turned to Rome, but Rome, this early Jewish uh, historian notes, Rome belittled the event didn't really take it seriously, didn't really take any action, belittled it, trivialized it, and kind of just moved along. Outraged, this group of Jewish people went back to their community, or the Jewish community heard, and fueled at that point by spite and vengeance and a heart that desired the absolute obliteration of this other people group, they went back to the Samaritan village killed all the people, and burned the village to the ground. AD 51, not that far, not that distant from the events that are taking place in this passage now. Do you see how dry the straw of the cultural fabric was? Do you see that any spark that caught onto these dry leaves of incredible tension between two ethnic groups and two religious groups, any spark could set this whole thing off. And often people would avoid each other, the Jews and the Samaritans, because they knew tensions were high. And, and, and even the smallest things, or even, the, even challenging things, could cause the whole thing to burst into flames. So they tried to avoid each other. And yet, and yet, Jesus doesn't avoid Samaria. He enters Samaria. He sends people ahead of himself into Samaria. But look what, what happens. Verse 53, look at it again. But the people did not receive him. They rejected him. They rejected Jesus. They rejected his followers and, and, and thereby rejected Christ's mission. They rejected what God was unfolding through Christ. They rejected his people. They rejected him. Why? Specifically because his face was set toward Jerusalem, which rivaled... Mount Gerizim. Jer Jerusalem was the Jewish center of worship. Mount Gerizim was the Samaritan center of worship. And specifically because they were set out to go to Jerusalem, they were rejected. Now, this is not a rejection of all the Airbnbs had been gobbled up, <laughs> or all the Motel uh, 8s or, or, or were, were, were in full capacity. This was... Uh, an attack against honor in an honor-shame culture. This was a statement that said, we do not receive you and we reject you and your followers and the mission that you go out to accomplish. So this is a rejection that is taking place already in the context of incredible tension between two people groups, two ethnic groups. The tension is high. The tender, the... Uh, the um, the, uh, the, the leaves are dry. Any spark could set this thing off, and now they are rejected. Now, Jesus has told his disciples how to respond when they are rejected by a community. 
in the same chapter, turn back to Luke 9, verse 5. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Luke 9, 5. Jesus says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, what are you supposed to do? Disciples, Jesus says, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And every 21st century year says, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Shaking off dust from our feet, what does that mean? There's a, there's a phrase that we still use that's somewhat close. It's not quite an exact equivalent, but it's near enough, I think, to help us out. The idea of washing our hands of a situation. To shake the dust off your feet is, is something similar of, of saying, the ball is in your court. There's a warning baked in there, and there's an incredible broken heart driven by grace for the community, for the people group, that have rejected the purposes of God. So what's, what's happening? Jesus is sending his disciples ahead of him into Samaria. They have a distinct mission, which is ultimately going to lead them to Jerusalem, God's road to save us. The Samaritan village rejects them. That means they've rejected Jesus, they've rejected his followers, they've rejected his message, they've rejected his purposes, which is also God's purposes for them. And to shake the dust off your feet is both a warning and a grace at the same time. It's as, it's as if the disciples would be saying by shaking dust off their feet, we've shared, we've shared this message, we've shown you Jesus, we want you to see it and understand it and know it and partner in a way in, with us by showing us hospitality. But if you don't, if you reject Jesus and his mission and his message forever, that path will lead you down an eternity of separation from God and his purposes. So do you see the warning driven by love and by grace? The idea that if we constantly, forever, perpetually, all our entire lives reject Jesus and his message, we have chosen our own fate. That in a way, in a way, in a way, God isn't sending people to hell. That's something we've chosen for ourselves in our own rebellion, our own rejection, our own sin. The gospel says, won't you be saved out of that trajectory? Won't you be saved out of that path? And Christ's disciples are going ahead to make preparations for Jesus on his journey to save us, yet they are rejected. What we're supposed to do in those moments, Jesus says, is shake the dust off your feet with tears in your eyes, sadness for the community who's rejected Jesus, in a way you're saying, soberingly so, the ball's in your court. You've got to respond. Please respond. And if you don't respond, not out of vengeance and spite and anger, but of brokenness of heart, if you don't respond, the end of that path does not lead to a happy ending. That's what shaking the dust off your feet meant. That's what they are called to do when they are rejected. And that's exactly not what happens at all. <laughs> that's not what the disciples do. Look how the disciples respond, verse 54. When his disciples, and we see James and John specifically named, when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And, oh, man, no. No, 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 no. We're like three verses away from verse 51, Jesus going on the road to save us, and then we get a line. You feel like that line could be taken like right out of a Godfather movie, you know? They're rejected. Lord. <laughs> I feel like De Niro needs to say this line, you know? 
You want us to call fire from heaven? Consume them. Ah, no. That's not what we want. That's how the disciples respond. They're not wanting to shake the dust off their feet. They're wanting to turn the Samaritans and their village to dust. They want them undone. How does Jesus respond to his own disciples? Look at the next verse. Check this out. He turns, verse 55, to his disciples now, and he rebukes them. He rebukes them. He sees the hatred in the heart of his own disciples for the Samaritans, and he rebukes them. It's a rebuke of sanctification. It's a, re it's a rebuke of his own disciples. And then verse 56, and then they went to another village. And we see in their response, or lack of proper response, and in Jesus' response to them, we see that the disciples miss an understanding of God's judgment, and they miss an understanding of God's reconciliation and his peace. They miss these two key components that we must understand and must appreciate. Number one, God's judgment is ultimately, finally, his ultimate judgment, final judgment is for then and not ultimately for now. That every single day, that, that we are given another breath and another opportunity to respond to the gospel is an expression of God's kindness and his patience that leads us toward repentance. Notice, he says, shake the dust off your feet. It gives a, a people, a person, a community, an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Because if, if God poured out ultimate judgment and justice immediately, none of us would be here. None of us would make it. We would all be obliterated every single moment that we have an opportunity to respond to the gospel is an expression of God's love and compassion and care for us. Final, ultimate judgment is for then, not immediately for now. The disciples missed that. They wanted fire from heaven now. It's for then, not for now. An ultimate, final judgment is in God's hands, not our hands. And that's what ensures that judgment will be handled and justice will be handled perfectly in, in the hands of God instead of taking up matters into our own hands. Now, there's some nuance here. In God's common grace, an expression of God's character, all wrongs will be made right. In a profound way, we are called to be peacemakers and reconcilers here and now. We're called to partner in that work of making wrongs right. And ultimate, ultimate, final judgment and justice is still the prerogative of God. It's in his hands, which means we know it will be taken care of. Every wrong in your life will be held to account. And at the same time, the ball is in God's court, which means that uh, the human heart has a magnetic pull to want to not just make things right, but to destroy and obliterate the wrongdoer. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Some of you know that phrase from the Old Testament. That's actually an expression of God's grace that says if you've been wronged, the judgment cannot exceed in intensity the wrongdoing. If someone comes and, and destroys your cow, the cow that you depend on for your work and vocation, God's word is saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You can't turn then and burn down your neighbor's entire farm. The expression of justice must not exceed the wrongdoing. And the expression of justice and ultimate judgment is held in the hands of God. The disciples totally missed that. 
They get rejected, and they want to burn the village to the ground. They miss an understanding of God's judgment, and they miss an understanding of God's peace and reconciliation and how the gospel makes us peacemakers and reconcilers. Because if at the core of the gospel is an innocent Savior who is wrongly killed and crucified because of my sin, my evil, my wrongdoing, my rebellion, I put him there. My sins put him there. My sins nailed him to the cross. And if at the core of the gospel is Christ dying, not for friends, but for enemies, do you know what? When you take that and put it into the heart of a peacemaker, do you know what's going to start to happen? You're going to be humble, humble in your efforts of reconciliation. Because every single one of us has bumped into people who are trying to make peace or trying to reconcile, but they're not doing it from a humble heart. They're doing it from a self-righteous heart. But the gospel humbles us because we realize the same reconciliation we're trying to see take place in the world is the same kind of reconciliation that we first needed and first received in Christ. It makes us humble. It doesn't take the passion out of it. It doesn't take the importance for the work of making wrongs right. It doesn't take wind out of the sails. But my goodness, it gives us humble fuel to burn on. That in a profound way, Someone shaped by the gospel, a heart shaped by the gospel, is going to love and care for both the wronged and the wrongdoer. It's going to see evil in the heart of the wrongdoer that needs to be undone, but there's going to be a a paradoxical care and commitment for both image bearers, both the wronged and the wrongdoer. It's going to make us humble, and then number two, it's going to make us willing, because you're going to bump into others who aren't willing to reconcile. They don't see the need. Why would I need to be reconciled with my neighbor? But let me ask you the question. Is it so far of a jump that if we needed to be ultimately reconciled with God, if we hated God and hated one another before Christ, is that so far of a jump that we just might need to be reconciled with our neighbor? This might be true of individuals. might be true of entire groups of people. It's not so big of a jump, is it? The gospel makes us humble in peacemaking and reconciliation. The gospel makes us willing to be peacemakers and, and, and reconcilers. And my friends, you will not find something that complex, that nuanced, that helpful for the world in any other place other than the biblical gospel. See what Jesus is and is not doing for both the Samaritans and his disciples. In a time when everyone would have avoided Samaria, Jesus enters it. In a time, uh, Jesus, ethnically Jewish, could have avoided Samaria and his followers wouldn't have batted an eye. He said, go ahead of me. Go ahead of me into Samaria. Prepare the way for me. He loves the Samaritans. He loves them. He uses them. He honors them by using the good Samaritan as the hero of a parable. He loves the Samaritans. And he loves his disciples. That even when God the Son sees some evil in the hearts of his own disciples, he rebukes them, a sanctifying rebuke, but he doesn't discard them. He loves both of these groups, and that is the kind of heart that's going to start to form in your heart, that you're going to start to share the heart of Jesus for people. Do you see just how deep this transformative heart for people? If you follow Jesus, if you're walking with him, that heart is going to become your heart. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to follow him? Are you willing to see just how much he will transform your heart and change your heart for people. Humble and willing, loving both to the wrong and wrongdoer. You will see your relationships transformed. Are you ready for that?
That's number one. Following Jesus will transform your heart for people. Number two, following Jesus will reprioritize your life to God. It's going to take everything of your life and shuffle the cards until everything is reprioritized as second and third and following to God, who is first and foremost in our life. See it in these next three scenes, these next three interactions that Jesus has with these uh, disciples. As they were going along the road, verse 57, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holds, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? He's saying that the creator doesn't even have a home in his own creation. Foxes have homes. Birds of the air have homes. Jesus is saying, I don't even have a, I'm homeless. I don't have a place to lay my head. And if we want to follow Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that I will take first priority over everything in your life, all the things in our life, not even bad things, good things. Jesus says, I will take first priority over that, your security, your comfort, your career, uh, your, your, your things, your car, your home, your computer, your phone, your sports, your activities, your music, your hobbies, everything in your life, your budget, your calendar, your priorities, your commitments. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I must be first priority. Everything else falls in line as second. Are you ready to follow him? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to let God reprioritize your life in such a way that he is first? It's shocking, is it not? It's profound, is it not? He will take priority over everything. Jesus will also take priority even over people. That's the interaction that we see next. Verse 59, uh, to another Jesus said, follow me. The person responded to Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, which doesn't seem unreasonable to ask. And Jesus, verse 60, says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wh what? What's he saying there? He's not being cold to this person or cold to the process of mourning the loss of family, but what he is saying, profoundly and shockingly so, is as much as family is a priority in your life, and it should be, I will even be a greater priority. Love me more. Love me first. Set the priorities that you have for your children. Set the priorities to the commitment to honor your parents. Second to me. I will be first in your heart, Jesus says. Are you ready to follow him? Even to give the good relationships that you have, relationships that God calls you to be Christ-like in, are you ready to put those second to him? Will you follow him? Third interaction. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus takes priority over everything. Jesus takes priority over people in our life. And Jesus takes priority over our past. Certainly he takes priority over the wrong things, but he's also taking priority over good things. That when Jesus said, no one looks back is fit for the kingdom, this is a longing gaze back, kind of a longing over-the-shoulder look of, was the grass greener on the side I was before? Do I need to look back at the things I left to follow Jesus? And if we look back, our road will stray. I will take priority over everything that you have given up to follow me. What do you guys think? 
too harsh? I mean, these are some big statements. This is not an easy passage. You've, I, you can even feel the weight in the room here for the sober reality of the things that Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will not be a commitment in your life. He's saying, I will be the commitment of your life. That if we are, if we are still relating with Jesus as just a comforter, and he's at least that, who comforts us along the way, uh, periodically, that we call on him, if we're relating with Jesus just as a help and an assistance on our own journey for the goals that we have, the wishes we have, the dreams that we have, do you see? We're not, we're not worshiping him, we're using him. We're not adoring him. We're using him because we're still chasing after the true lords, the true saviors of our life, and if we are only calling on God to help assist periodically on the pursuit of the goals and dreams and aspirations that we have, we're not treating him as Lord at all. We're treating him like a divine intern who we call on periodically to help us along our way. And what Jesus is saying is this, if you want to follow me, I will not be a cosmic help that you call on periodically now, now catch the nuance. Is he our help in time of need? Absolutely. Absolutely he is. But he's saying, I will not just be a help. I'm not just going to be a consultant. I will be master of your life. I will call the shots. I'll set the direction. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll set the journey. I'll set the course. If you follow me, the only way to follow him is utter ultimate allegiance and obedience to him. Are you ready to follow him? Are these words too harsh? And I think the answer is no. Why? Because if Christ has expressed unconditional love for us, it is not wrong for him to request unconditional allegiance from us. This is unconditional love, that he loves us without condition. The gospel is a gift of grace. Jesus, says, Jesus doesn't say, uh, I'll save you if you do a couple things along the way to make yourself worthy of salvation. He said, you're not worthy of salvation. I'll do all the work. I will give of my infinite resources and grace to save you. It's unconditional love. And it's a very fitting response as you see that and as it melts your heart. It's not wrong for him to ask because he's given us unconditional love. It's not wrong for him to ask of unconditional allegiance. Are you ready for that call? Are you ready for that path? That following Jesus means he must be your Lord. He must be your Savior. That the only way to follow him is to give everything to him. So I'm going to ask again and again, are you ready to follow him? I hope the answer is yes. Because when we follow him, you cannot help but have your heart transformed for people. And you cannot help but have your life reprioritized to God. Ironically so, when we die to self and live to Christ, we lose nothing, but we gain everything. That we are absorbed up into God's redemptive journey, his redemptive work, and his path. Do you see the path that he's leading us on? It's a one that results in getting him. It's a one that results in absolutely changing our heart for people and changing our lives. The world needs that. Your coworkers need that. You need that. Your family needs that. It's going to transform your life. 
It can transform the, life, the dynamic of an entire family system. It can transform your workplace and your vocation. It can transform the way that people or people groups relate to one another. This is what the call of Jesus, if you follow him, if you walk with him, this is the life change that will take place. Will you follow him? Will you join this journey of Christian discipleship? It's a costly journey, is it not? And the real question is, will we do it? Will we really follow him? And I want to ironically encourage you by saying, you won't be able to follow him until. You, you won't see him as worth your cost until you truly understand that he saw you worth his cost. The only way your heart is going to melt to the point of giving him unconditional allegiance is until you first see he saw you worth his cost. What was his cost? Infinite glory, infinite resources, infinite adoration. He gives it all up for you and I. Dies a death that he did not deserve. He is innocent. If there ever was a, a perfectly unjust situation, it was the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He wasn't supposed to be there, but he went willingly for you and for me to swap places. And if he saw you worth his cost, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We're in chapter 9 of Gospel Luke. He's setting out his face to go to Jerusalem. We're 10 chapters away from just the triumphal entry. That kind of every single day, Jesus knew that every verse that goes by, every chapter that goes by, leads him closer to his death. And he saw you worth his cost. Once that hits your heart, once that hits your soul, it's going to melt your heart to the point that you're going to see, if that is true of what he's done for me, then there is no cost too great that I cannot give to him. There is no sacrifice too great that, that I could not hand to him and know that I won't be losing my life, I will be truly gaining my life. He is worth the cost. Look at the gospel long enough, hard enough, consistently enough until you see, Lord, I know that I cannot follow you in my own strength, but because of what you've done for me, because of how you're shaping my heart, I want to follow you. You've given me that heart. That whatever you might ask to come second in my life, whatever, whatever person you put in my path to love and to, and to be Christ to them, Lord, because of what you have done, I will do it. Why? Because I see you as worth it. Because he first saw us as worth it. You can't help but have your heart transformed for people and your life reprioritized to God. That's the call. That's the, that's the path that this journey will lead us on. Will you follow him? Will you follow? Let's pray. Father, we know and we sense and I, I trust and I believe and hope that we would appreciate the, the weight of this calling, but Lord, that we would also appreciate the need and the beauty of this calling. Lord, that we want to follow you, help us to follow you. We want to see you as first priority, help us to see you as first priority. May we capture a glimpse of the King and what you've done for us to such an extent, Lord, that it wouldn't be a burden but a desire, that it wouldn't be a duty to follow you but a choice. 
And in doing that, in following you, giving you everything, Lord, would you transform the world through us, our marriages, our families, our communities, our neighborhoods, our vocations, our, 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 everyone that we interact with, Lord. May you give us glimpses of true gospel renewal because of what you first done in us. May that be. Empower us to this end, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.